to see everybody, Dr. House. All right. Good morning, everybody. Everybody knows me. My name's Merle Severson. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself, I guess, for the iPod broadcast, and then we'll go through this. And I like to have a discussion rather than just to, just to lecture. Um, so feel free to stop me at any time, ask me to expound, or if I confuse you, please, please, by all means, stop me. Uh, so a little bit about my history. I graduated from medical school here back in 1997. Uh, the Navy paid my way through college and medical school, so I went and did a surgery internship with the Navy in San Diego at the medical center there from 97 to 98. And after that, decided I wanted to do diving medicine, undersea medicine. So they sent me to Connecticut and uh, Panama City, uh, Florida, for six months of training. I became an, what's called a quote-unquote undersea medical officer, and then was assigned um, to Spec War Group 1 with the Navy out in Coronado, so with the divers and the Special Forces guys. Um, contrary to popular belief, I'm not a SEAL, I'm not Spec War, I'm just a doc who has undersea medicine training, so put that out there right away. Um, <laughs> those guys hunt you down if you pose. <laughs> Um, so I had, a, I had a good time there, I was there for three years, I deployed quite a bit, spent some time in uh, Thailand, spent some time in the Philippines, spent some time in the, in the Gulf. Uh, we developed a trauma course uh, for the uh, Special Forces Medic, um, both for, or for Air Force, for Navy, and for Army. Um, developed principles um, that were uh, basically Uh, first put out by a, a Captain Frank Butler, if anybody's ever heard of his name. He's really kind of the guru, at least from the Navy side, for tactical combat casualty care. And it's kind of counterintuitive, but basically uh, what he did is he looked to see what do people die of in times of war and war injuries. And the algorithm that comes out, while in ACLS and ATLS it's ABC, it's actually different. Uh, when you're in the battlefield and you do things differently. So we had a course that we used to run uh, for two, sometimes three weeks. We'd take guys out to this little island and put them through the paces, which was um, very uh, educational for me, but also a lot of fun as well. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started. Well, I guess I should say, so I finished that, got tired, not tired, but decided to move on in my medical career and then came here to do neurosurgery. So. I've got another two years to go. So diving medicine, what we'll talk about today is a little bit about diving physics, a little bit about disparate diseases. Touch briefly on just types of diving. Um, if anybody's interested in having a textbook on diving, uh, the, the textbook by Beauvais is actually considered the Bible, at least within the Navy circles. Um, diving physics, a little bit about pressure. You can see that pressure is, is measured a whole bunch of different ways. Pounds per square inch, kilograms per centimeter squared, millimeters of mercury, bars, pascals, megapascals. You can see all kinds of different things. So if you see people talking about pressure, it's, it's important to figure out which way you're comfortable talking about pressure and then convert things so that you know. Uh, generally, in the Navy, the way that we talk about things are in terms of atmospheres. So we like to know how many atmospheres, not necessarily pascals or millimeters of mercury, but was this person at one atmosphere or two and a half atmospheres, what were they doing? This graph, or not graph, but this uh, figure is just to remind you that um, on the surface of the Earth, we are experiencing pressure, 
So the daily barometric pressure that we hear about in the news, and if a low pressure system comes in, it goes down. If a high pressure system comes in, it goes up a little bit. And basically that's due to the column of air that's above us. Okay, so that surrounds uh, the entire Earth. If you are at a height, say on a mountain, you're going to have reduced pressure, obviously. But when you go down um, and you dive, you need to take into account if you go down, say, 33 feet, which is equivalent to one atmosphere, that's one atmosphere of pressure plus the other atmosphere that's already there. So somebody is seeing an absolute of two atmospheres. And this figure is just to show that the Earth is a complex environment. And uh, to talk about the atmosphere and uh, the oceans, but also some people do high altitude diving. And, and it's important to keep that in mind because your atmospheric pressure is going to be less than, say, if somebody started a dive at sea level. And so those, that causes changes. Probably not so important for you guys in the emergency room. Give it to you as background if people go, go on to become divers. Or you'll learn more about that, but that's always something that you've got to be aware of. What altitude was somebody diving at? Diving physics. Lots and lots of gas laws. PV equals NRT. You see it again. <laughs> thought you were done. It just doesn't go away. It doesn't. <laughs> so basically, all of these laws can be de derived from the general gas law. And that's, that's all diving is. It's all about pressure. It's all about gas. Uh, PV equals NRT. So we can derive Boyle's law, which says if you keep temperature constant, then your pressure times your volume. One will equal a new pressure and a new volume compression. And we'll go through these a little bit and on down. I won't read all those to you. And then there's Henry's law uh, that states that the amount of gas that will dissolve in a liquid at a given temperature is directly directly proportional to the partial pressure. So that becomes important in terms of nitrogen dissolving into the plasma or oxygen dissolving into the plasma when people are under pressure. So there are some uh, immersion effects from diving. Blood is actually squeezed into your thorax, one to one and a half liters. Your blood pressure actually increases, stroke volume uh, goes up, cardiac output increases. Uh, A and P actually gets secreted and one of the things that's seen in, in divers when you're diving um, is people need to pee. They need to urinate. And if it's cold, it's kind of nice that you pee into your wetsuit and you have a nice little <laughs> micro layer of warm. It's not so uncomfortable. But um, the reason people have to urinate is because of the secretion of A and P. Um, there's also a mild decrease in functional residual capacity and vital capacity. So that's going to be important for lung performance. And if People say are doing a, a mission profile in, in the military. You know, if they have decreased FRC and decreased vital capacity, then probably their VO2 max is going to be different, and probably you need to account for the amount of work that you want somebody to do in a set time. So it's important to, to kind of know the physiologic effects. Um, and the other interesting fact is that your lung actually can't draw draw air uh, via a snorkel at a depth greater than three feet. So all those cartoons where people jump into a swimming pool and breathe through a straw, false. Can't do it. Diaphragm's not strong enough. You can't create enough of a vacuum because the pressure is such that it pushes on your chest. You can't do it. Three feet doesn't sound like very much, does it? No. This figure is to kind of show some of those <clears throat> effects and what happens. 
backup pointer. If we look at uh, figure A, this individual is standing just in air. You can see the normal position of the diaphragm, the normal size of the, of the lungs. If we put that same person in air, or I'm sorry, in water, well, obviously the density increases as you go down, so the pressure is increasing. You can see that the diaphragm, the position, has been pushed up slightly. The size of the lungs, the volume of the lungs, is slightly decreased as well. So Boyle's Law. For any gas at a constant temperature, the volume of the gas will vary inversely with the pressure. So basically what this is telling us is, is that uh, as the pressure changes, volume will change proportionally. This becomes important when we're talking about lungs. So if people aren't allowing, say, buildup of pressure in their lungs to come out as they're coming to the surface, they'll pop a lung. For instance, they are down at 30 feet, breathing pressurized gas. Decide, dive time's over, and I'm going to go to the surface, and somebody decides to hold their breath, or they cough, or they're not keeping their glottis open. That gas is going to expand as the pressure decreases. So that's what puts people at risk for uh, arterial gas embolism, for pneumothorax with diving. And actually, the greatest pressure change is near the surface. So it's actually more dangerous in people at higher risk near the surface. And so I always find it amusing when you, you go on vacation to these spots and they're like, you know, quick crash course in diving. It's no problem. You're going to be shallow. Don't, you know, don't worry. You can do this. Well, th that's actually the most dangerous place to be, especially for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. So if you ever happen to be on vacation or you end up practicing somewhere, where people are going to come in and dive, um, you want to be aware of that fact. This figure just demonstrates that uh, graph, or demonstrates that in uh, pictorial format. <clears throat> if we start with a volume of 100% or a volume of 1 at the surface, when we go down to 33 feet, which is, again, two atmospheres of pressure, our volume is half the diameter of a bubble. It's gone down to 79.3%. Um, and on down. I won't read that all to you. But burn this into your memory because when we talk about treating diving accidents, this then becomes important. If you think about the bends or AGE where somebody gets a, a bubble either into tissue or their arterial system, we're going to talk later about how to crush that bubble and get rid of that bubble. Okay? And, that, and being able to do that, as you see, is directly dependent upon pressure and how deep you go. So Boyle's Law, again, relationship to diving, immersion effects, squeezes as well. So if you think about air-filled cavities, we have mastoid air cells, we have maxillary sinuses. Um, if you have a, a cavity that wasn't treated well, you can have a pocket of gas, actually, from decay of your tooth. And it's not uncommon that some people, when they dive, will have a tooth <coughs> implode on them. Um, and then pulmonary overinflation, so again, pneumothorax. Any questions up to this point? Uh, Dalton's Law, total pressure exerted by a mixture of gases is equal to the sum of the pressures of each individual gas. Great. Why is that important? Well, that's important as far as gas toxicity goes. 
So has anybody heard about helium oxygen diving? Exactly. So nitrogen is used in the, in the dentist office as a, as a mild um, anesthetic. It's also used in anesthesia. What if somebody's diving air and say it goes real deep and we're increasing the partial pressure of nitrogen? You get, yeah, you get goofy, you get nitrogen narcosis. And there's a slide on that in a moment. So uh, Dalton's law says that if you want to reduce that effect, you need to put other gases in there. Does that make sense? So if you do helium, which doesn't have the same narcotic potency as, as say, nitrogen, you reduce that effect. And so you can predict that effect by knowing the constituent the constituent gases in the person's air supply. That totally confused everybody. No. You talk funny when you come back up. Uh, you talk funny when you're down. Yeah, definitely. And some, uh, depending upon how deep you go. So there used to be, um, there are some very very deep dives that they do. Um, Duke and other other institutions where they've taken people to say 2,000 feet put them on helium and you can't understand them, they have to have little, little things. So partial pressure calculations, what's the PO2 of air at 60 feet of seawater? That's almost equivalent to 3 feet. So we figure out that the partial pressure is equal to the atmosphere or to the, yeah, the absolute pressure and the percent of the gas. So 60 feet plus 33 divided by 33. Um, gives you 2.8 atmospheres, the percentage of gas is 0.21. So you can see that's 0.59 ATA. Excuse me. And if we say that 760 is, is 1 ATA, 0.59 of that is 450 millimeters of mercury. So if somebody comes into the ER who's not in distress and say you get a blood gas on them, do you guys know what their PaO2 is? 110, so 100, it's 450, just diving air. So then that becomes important in slides later when we start talking about oxygen toxicity and, and other things. But you can see how much O2 gets driven in. Just diving air going to 60 feet. Um, so a little bit more about Dalton's Law, its relationship to diving. Uh, there's gas toxicity at depth. We talked a little bit about nitrogen narcosis. Oxygen toxicity I'm going to talk a little bit about later. Um, and then decompression tables. Um, partial pressure of gases determines the decompression tables along with Henry's Law. And we'll talk about this more when we get into the bends. So Henry's law, solubility of a gas in a liquid is directly proportional to the pressure of the gas over the solution. So we see the formula, the concentration of the gas equals pressure times the solubility. So solubility coefficient uh, varies depending upon the solvent. An example is fizzy drinks. So if you think about soda, they push all the carbon dioxide into it to make it fizz. Your ability to do that is dependent upon the solvent. So in humans, the main solvent is water. And as the diver goes down and spends more time at depth, more gas dissolves into body tissues. And usually the diver's breathing air. So that's nitrogen, about 78%. Oxygen, 
oxygen, 21 to 22%, a little bit of other stuff. So like we were talking about with nitrogen narcosis, you're really pushing that nitrogen in, you're pushing that oxygen in. Well, we know that nitrogen, again, is going to have an anesthetic effect. Um, but say you're not down that long, you don't go deep enough to get that anesthetic effect, it's going to be build up in your tissues. So then what happens when you take the pop, the pop top off? Fizzes, right? You see everything come out of solution like that because you've done a, a very fast um, normalization of pressure. You've gone from pressurized drink to nothing, and so the bubbles come out of solution. Same thing with a human. If they spend a lot of time down at depth, come to the surface, it's like taking the top off a pop, off a soda, and things bubble out, hence the bends. Okay, it's nitrogen that, that bubbles out of solution, usually in the joints, and it's very, very painful. So we mentioned this already, nitrogen makes up about 79.1%, oxygen 20.9%, carbon dioxide very, very small. So this is, this is the bad player when we're talking about the bends and how long people can stay down at a, at a given depth. It's the nitrogen. That's what you're concerned about. Um, what are the physiologic effects of breathing? Gas under pressure? Um, well, oxygen, believe it or not, is actually toxic. Um, if you, at, high, um, at high pressures and um, longer times, you have CNS toxicity, but also lung toxicity. So even at sea level pressure, at standard atmospheric pressure, you put somebody on 100% oxygen, say in the ICU, they're ventilated, you will get pulmonary toxicity, okay? The time to that, I think, is like three days until you start seeing changes. If you put somebody um, in a high-pressure environment, your time to that drops dramatically. So that's one thing that we're always concerned about when people are either being treated in the hyperbaric chamber and put on 100% oxygen or they're in really deep, you know, kind of experimental environments where they're at huge depths. You know, how much oxygen is their body seeing and what's the risk of toxicity both lung and CNS? Again, we talked about cognitive functioning and the anesthetic effects of gases. And there's another syndrome, which I won't touch on too much, but it's the high pressure nervous syndrome seen mainly in saturation diving, C-Lab, um, seems to be a response to the pressure, but also the helium and, and other gases. And basically, they get, um, they get tremors, they get, can have seizures, and get the shakes. Very uncomfortable. So nitrogen narcosis, basically, it's the, the slang is rapture of the deep. Deeper than every 100 feet, an additional 50 feet produces a narcotic effect equal to one martini. And so in the Navy, we don't dive air less than 180. And our qualifying dive was like 180, 185 on air. And I was narked out, out of my gourd. Couldn't stop laughing, you know, just on the intercom. Because we had, we had hard hats on, so we had comms, and I just couldn't stop giggling. I was just laughing and laughing and laughing. Um, not the most professional thing, but I, I couldn't stop. And then you come up, and what was so funny? I don't know. It's just funny. <laughs> so um, you will see, you know, places like Guam or other places that have really deep places. Um, you'll see recreational divers think, oh, "I'm going to die. You know, it's no big deal." And people die all the time. 
because they get down and they think they can breathe without their regulator and they do stupid things. So um, it's something, something to ask people about if you're ever somewhere where you get a diving accident comes in to try and find out how deep they were, what, what gas they were diving, something to be aware of. This, uh, this table just shows some of the narcotic potencies of different gases. Um, they are, so this is least, this is most, so we can see that helium, very, very low. So that's why in these supersaturation environments, they dive helium oxygen. Um, you can see nitrogen is given the value of one. Um, and you look at xenon, you wouldn't want somebody to breathe xenon oxygen to get surgical anesthesia pretty quick. This is a picture of uh, the old sea lab. I think it was either the 40s or 50s. You can see standard issue Navy divers, you know, living underwater, um, doing whatever it is that they do. And this is the actual sea lab that was put on the, on, the, on the ocean floor. And some of the interesting things that they found were um, that pressure actually affected performance on psychometric tests. So you can see that time to solve problems, errors in problems, uh, seem to increase, seem to get better for a time, but then also worsen the further you go on. So why is that important? Well, that tells you that people aren't going to make good decisions if they're diving really deep. That's why the dictum, plan your dive and dive your plan, is, is really enforced in divers. But also, if you ever have the opportunity to work in a hyperbaric chamber, if you're going to go in the chamber and try and deliver care to somebody who's a diving injury, your ability to kind of think and do things is impeded a little bit. Again, they took us to, uh, to 170 feet, um, and we pretended to take vitals and to provide care to somebody. It was hard. I mean, you had to sit. You had to really think. And it, it was difficult. So, uh, Disparic diseases. Um, barotrauma. Basically, barotrauma means trauma due to air, to pressure basically pressure. Um, when we talk pulmonary, we talk about AGE, arterial gas embolism, and pneumothorax. You can have squeezes with your mask. So if your mask is sitting on your face, that's a pocket of air. Sometimes people who aren't so comfortable in the water don't want to breathe in or out with their nose. They're really frightened and they go down. And it gets, mask gets pushed in, pushed in, pushed in. And the pressure gets greater and greater, and their eyes start sucking out, and they can't figure out what's going on. All they have to do is blow a little air out of their nose to equalize the pressure. And you'll see people come up sometimes with this huge ring and bruise and ruptured scleral vessels, and their eyes are purple. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, you can have mask squeeze. Ear squeezes um, in the tympanic membrane, you can actually have round window, round window rupture as well. This is very serious. These people need to be seen by uh, an otolaryngologist uh, quickly. And sinus squeezes again, so talked about the tooth example, but also maxillary sinuses and, and others um, can be air-filled structures. And if somebody has a cold and takes a little Sudafed or Afrin so that they can clear, so they can go down and dive, and say they're down diving, the effects of their medication wear off, tissues swell up again, they're trying to come up. Well, so now you have a closed space, and you have pressurized gas, and they're trying to come up. And what happens? Well, that gas is trying to expand. So it becomes very, very painful. It's probably going to cause 
some sort of trauma, depending upon where it is. The person's not going to stay down there forever. They have to come up. So that's why it's important to, to maybe not use Afrin and other things. If you go on vacation, you want to dive. Just don't do it. <clears throat> this just uh, to remind us uh, the structure of the inner ear. So what is it that you're doing when you're clear, when people talk about clearing your ears and, and ear barotrauma? So we have the external auditory canal. So this sees pressure. So whether this is filled with air or this is filled with seawater down at 60 feet, okay, it's filled and, and it's going to see pressure and it's going to exert an effect. Okay, it's going to push the tympanic membrane in. If the pressure on this side of the tympanic membrane is lower than out here, okay, so if the eustachian tube is closed, and we'll say that this is one atmospheric of pressure, and you're going down in the water column, and the pressure's increasing here, things like to go from high pressure to low pressure. So it's going to push, push, push in. And if you don't clear, and by clearing I mean plugging your nose or adjusting your jaw so that you open the tube and equalize with the pressure of the gas that you're breathing, if you don't do that, then you're going to get tympanic membrane uh, rupture. Okay, so that's what clearing is, simply equilibrating the pressure on either side of the tympanic membrane. When you mentioned around window rupture, what, uh, I guess I've never heard that, what are some of the symptoms? Severe vertigo. Okay. Yeah, severe vertigo. Yeah. So it usually happens, person's fine, um, and they're usually near the surface, either going down or going up and they have a problem clearing or they coughed when they were coming up and they pop their round window and the world is just spin, 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 spin. So if that happens near the surface, it's one of the things you're always worried about. Do you ever see anybody with that in your experience? Yeah. It's pretty rare, but yeah, it's, it's bad. Bad news. So again, um, barotrauma and squeezes, we talked about the mask, we talked about the sinuses. Um, hopefully you don't have any air in your cranial cavity to worry about, uh, but then also in the thorax. And so the essential ingredients are grave, gas-filled space, rigid walls, ambient pressure changes, vascular penetration, and enclosed spaces. So again, we talked about squeezes as far as a mask and, and so I put something on here about a suit. Has anybody ever heard of a dry suit? So dry suits, people just wear their normal clothes. It's usually in a, a very harsh environment, very cold. And dry suits go on, um, they're non-permeable to water and there's some air in there. And sometimes uh, there's little pockets of air and those can, depending upon where that is, as you're going down, the air can get trapped and it can pinch your skin and squeeze your skin. Suit squeeze. You don't want to pee in those suits. That's exactly right. <laughs> Unless it's your buddies, then it's probably okay. <laughs> um, again, we talked about the tooth. Um, and again, we, uh, ear actually is the, the middle ear squeeze is actually the number one diving injury. And so this is called aerotitis. Um, again, not to beat the dead horse, but it's the most common medical complaint. And again, Poor technique or congestion. Um, here's a, a small graphic to try and illustrate some of that. These are graded from grade zero to a grade five, which is uh, rupture. So grade zero is kind of fine, it's a normal tympanic membrane. 
Grade one, it's a little erythematous and congested. Grade two, a little bit more so. And then on down again until you get, until you get rupture. So if you see this, obviously that goes to otolaryngology. They should be evaluated. Um, grade one, two, zero, and three, they just need to stay out of the water. You can't dive again until their tympanic membrane's normal. Reverse squeezes, I touched on uh, slightly already. Gas under pressure enters an airfield space. The gas is then unable to escape as you come up. Again, same, same places, ear, sinus, tooth, lung. Um, in lung, you have pulmonary overpressurization syndrome. You get POPs, so pneumothorax. And so then you're worried about, is this going to be a tension or just a, a regular pneumothorax? And what are you going to need to do? So pulmonary overinflation syndrome, syndrome, the alveolar uh, rupture requires about a 70 millimeter of mercury pressure gradient. So what's atmospheric pressure? 760, so we're talking about like a tenth, okay, tenth of an atmosphere. Um, it may occur in water as shallow as one meter, again, those really shallow depths, so one meter is about three feet. That's where you're really concerned about, okay, it's where you have to have good technique. And that's why I think places that allow people without any experience to dive in shallow water, I think it just traps. Um, <clears throat> what will you see? Sometimes you'll see emphysema, either subcutaneous or uh, mediastinal, uh, occasionally even a pneumothorax. The bad player is AGE, arterial gas embolism. So you get this rupture and you get a big air bubble that goes into the arterial circulation. And if that goes to the brain, obviously that's bad. 20% of your cardiac output goes to the head. So if that ends up in the internal carotid, you have stroke-like syndrome. So because this is such a serious problem, um, <clears throat> any person that comes to the surface and loses consciousness within 10 minutes is presumed to have AGE and will then be treated as such, assuming there's a hyperbaric chamber nearby. And this just says what I said. And we'll talk a little bit later about how to treat uh, for that. So cerebral artery gas embolism, again, these people are, tend to be symptomatic within 10 minutes of surfacing. They have confusion, ataxia, sensory symptoms. So the symptoms that you'd expect to see with stroke, that's what you'd be noticing. And they require immediate recompression. Uh, this figure just describes the origin and pathways of bubbles. Um, AV refers to arteriovenous, PFO uh, refers to patent foramen ovale. So if somebody's undergoing decompression and they suffer pulmonary barotrauma, they can have an arterial bubble. If they have extravascular bubbles, so we'll say in the soft tissue or in the joints, and they get some kind of microvascular damage, you have the potential to have arterial bubbles. Um, they can form in the lymphatics or go venous and go to the heart. If they're large enough and don't dissolve, you can have a PFO or an AV shunt. Again, there you are, arterial bubbles. The bubble goes from the heart to the lungs and goes in, potentially pops. It can get through. Hopefully it's filtered and exhaled. But you have to be concerned that anybody who's, who's forming bubbles with the bends or, or anything else, um, that it could go to the arterial side. Um, decompression sickness, this is 
basically is a result from nitrogen coming out of solution. It's called the Benz. And does anybody know why it's called the Benz? Yeah, exactly. So they so it was originally seen in caisson workers. People know what caisson workers are. Those are guys that would build the for the bridges. They put these large things in rivers, pump out the water, and I think they build the foundations or whatever. And so they'd have these tunnels, and the guys would walk down to work in the morning, and they'd be down there working, doing their thing or whatever, and then they'd come back, come back up. And as they they're walking up, they the guys would be walking. And they'd hurt. And they were getting the bends because they were, had been down working all day, had built up a lot of nitrogen. Again, walking to the surface quickly is like popping your soda, popping your beer, if you will. And out comes nitrogen. And it hurts. And the, the position that provides the most relief is to bend up. Usually it's in the knees, it's in the elbows, it can be in the, in the joints and the spine. So, because of that, the Navy, both British and American, back in um, the 40s or 30s, um, put out a note and got lots of volunteers to figure out what's safe and what's not safe. <laughs> when do you need to, you know, when do you need to maybe make a decompression stop on your way up to let the nitrogen come out of solution and, and breathe it out uh, versus not need to make a make a stop? And so they took these guys and they have them breathe air and they put them down at a certain depth for a certain amount of time, bring them up, oh, that guy got bent, okay, so that's probably bad, we can't do, you know, and they generated this curve. Um, and so <clears throat> what people are supposed to do when they dive is try to stay in the green. You can't always stay in the green and people are usually turn into animals when they're underwater and want to stay deeper and longer. And so if you do, you're supposed to make a decompression stop. And those can be at different depths for different amounts of time. But that decompression stop allows the body to, to release the nitrogen so it doesn't bubble out of solution. So it's always important if you're treating somebody who may be a diving accident, you know, what was your depth? Okay, how deep did you go? And you want to know the deepest they went. And then you want to know what was your dive time? What was your total dive time? Okay, and even if they say, well, I only went to 100 feet for like a minute. The rest of the time I was at 60 feet. Well, too bad. We're going to count you as 100 feet, okay, for however long you were down. And you're going you're gonna to penalize them so that you're more conservative. So you can figure out if they didn't stop what they should have done for a decompression stop. So that's, that's the most critical uh, part of the history, I think, for you guys to take if you're ever treating somebody who um, has a diving injury. What was your depth? What was your time? And then you can look on the web, you can look all kinds of different places to find this and then to know what to do. When you're treating them with the hyperbaric chamber, do you take them all the way to the original depth? Great question. We'll cover that in probably five slides. So this is just uh, a tabular representation of this slide that shows what your maximum depth can be and for how long. You can see uh, U.S. Navy tables versus Royal Navy versus um, Data Master, Data Scan. And you'll see that some people now um, in the recreation community dive with little computers. So this little computer is going to figure it out for them. Um, and they won't even bother planning their dive and they just dive by their computer. And those people tend to have more accidents than people that, that dive a table. Um, and so that's also another question.
to ask somebody, were you diving a computer, were you diving a table? And you'd be surprised at the kind of tricks people will do with their computer to, to show that they can dive more frequently and deeper. So people will leave, leave it hang. They'll take their computer, they'll come to the surface, they'll take off their stuff and they'll hang their computer down into the water three or four feet. You know, but not counted as a dive, but it'll, it'll so because of that pressure, says that they can get in the water quicker, and so then they get back in the water and they, they have accents. You're just, you know, so then it's Sunday night, two in the morning, and they're calling you to come in and help the bozo and dive your plan. So again, the bends, uh, we talked a little bit. There are actually different types. There's musculoskeletal, which is the bends. You can have uh, bubbles in your lungs. That's called the chokes. Um, you have neurologic, or you can have a vestibular, so actually bubbles form in the in the labyrinth, um, that's called the staggers. Um, all people with the bends need to be treated with 100% oxygen and need to get to a recompression chamber as quickly as possible. Um, all people, regardless of whether they've been in a diving accident or not, are not supposed to fly for 24 hours. So again, another common thing to see. People are diving right up until they have to leave. You know, Their flight leaves at 3 in the afternoon where they're going to do a morning dive. They do their morning dive and then they get on the plane. Planes are pressurized to 8,000 feet. So again, that's, you just, you know, so if you're on a plane and you're coming back from some place where everybody's really tan and was on vacation, it's something to, to maybe be aware of that somebody sitting next to you or somewhere in the plane was dumb and didn't, didn't follow the 24-hour rule and might have the bends, okay, might suffer the bends. Does that make sense? What are the signs and symptoms? Pain, 76%. So most people are going to have pain. Pain, pain, pain. Numbness and paresthesia is 4%. Skin rashes, 4%. So by and large, people are going to complain of pain. So if you have somebody who says, I've been diving in the last 24 hours, I've got this pain, likely they've got the bends. They need to be put on 100% oxygen and they need to go someplace and get uh, compressed. What are some conditions that mimic decompression sickness or AGE? There's quite a long list, but a lot of them you should be able to exclude uh, fairly easily. Seafood toxin poisoning, maybe the person doesn't like seafood, on down. So it's things to be aware of, but again, if somebody's been diving and they come in with pain, Common things being common, Occam's razor, probably um, decompression. So type 1, like we talked about, it's limb pain only. Um, they can have cutaneous manifestations, which will manifest as pruritus. Um, you might also see this cutis marmorata, which is marbling. See a venous obstruction of the skin or, or a vascular spasm because of the bubbles. So it'll look web-like. Um, and that's often a sign that more serious DCS is to follow. And again, we went through those. What are risk factors for decompression sickness? Age, the, the older you are, the more at risk you are. Sorry, ladies, uh, women are at more risk because they have uh, more fat stores usually than men, so they end up storing more nitrogen than the men do, and that tends to come out in solution. Hydration status, people who are dehydrated tends, tend to suffer the bends more. Again, body fat, we just talked about people who are not fit or have been drinking lots of alcohol, also at increased risk. 
We talked a little bit about dive profile. What's the time to symptom onset? 50% less than 30 minutes, 85% one hour after servicing, 95% within three hours. So what are the effects of the bubbles? Well, there's mechanical effects. They obstruct flow and they can distort tissue and cause trauma to tissue. Uh, there's the non-mechanical effects. They can activate the coagulation cascade, cause leukocytes to be activated, cause complement-mediated injury. So the treatment is recompression. And the purpose of your recompression therapy is to decrease the bubble size, promote off-gassing, and, and increase O2 delivery to the tissues that have been injured. Um, so this jumps right into hyperbaric medicine. So hyperbaric medicine is indicated for diving accidents in the bends, um, AGE as well. But also, there are 15 other approved indications that uh, Medicare will pay for, uh, ranging from osteoradionecrosis to osteomyelitis to diabetic foot ulcers. Generally, for these cases, individuals are placed in a chamber to 45 feet of seawater and breathe 100% um, oxygen for 30 minutes, 5-minute air break, 30 minutes, 5-minute air break, 30 minutes, and then come to the surface. Uh, this is the chamber here at the University of Iowa. It's a multi-place chamber. This is one of the chambers at Panama City. You probably re remember this. Um, this is a multi-place chamber. You can see um, you have a little slide. You slide the patient in uh, for your treatment. And this is um, an example of one of the U.S. Navy treatment tables. So for a standard kind of bends, somebody that comes in, we run what's called a, a treatment table six. So we take the patient down to 60 feet of seawater, regardless of whatever depth they were at. They go to 60. And this colored shaded portion indicates placing the patient on 100% oxygen. So you'll see that we'll go down and place them on 100% oxygen for 25 minutes, 5-minute air break, 25 five-minute air break, 25, five-minute air break, place them back on oxygen, and then over the course of 30 minutes, bring the patient from 60 feet to 30 feet. Again, you can see the air in the oxygen periods, and then finally bring them to the surface. So you can see it's a long time. Somebody comes in with arterial gas embolism, so like this is the person that came up and then collapsed within 10 minutes and is unconscious. They go down to 165 feet. So two points I'll make. One, somebody has to tend to that person at 165 feet. So your own ability to think is impeded. But also, remember when we talked about the size of the bubble? So that bubble, you're trying to crush it. So that's why you have to go to 165 feet to really try to crush that bubble down, restore flow to whatever's been blocked um, in the cerebral circulation. And you keep them down on air or 50-50 nitrogen oxygen for 30 minutes and you assess, reassess, and there's some other pathways. And then when they start to improve, then you come back to your 60 feet and kind of run your treatment table six. <clears throat> so this figure is uh, to talk about bubble size, but also gradients for, um, for gases to move. So if we talk about one ATA of air versus one ATA of oxygen, and then we talk about 2.82 air versus 2.82 on oxygen, bubble is here on the graph. 
So let's just focus on the bubble. You can see that the bubble is going to be made up of nitrogen, a little bit of water, and a little bit of oxygen. If you then take that person and put them in a chamber to 2.82 atmospheres and compress them but only have them breathe air, you haven't really changed, you haven't changed the uh, coefficient necessarily for the, for the um, nitrogen to leave the bubble. Does that make sense? So if we look at the tissue next door here, or even in the alveolus, you're trying to get this to come out here. Not so much. But if we talk about having on 100% oxygen, the gradient is much larger for the nitrogen to move. So nitrogen here trying to move over, not a very large gradient. So it's not going to, it's going to take a long time. That's why you put somebody on 100% oxygen, because the gradient, the bubble's full of nitrogen. And you fill the, the plasma, you fill the lungs with oxygen, no nitrogen, so that the drive for the nitrogen to come out of the bubble and decrease the size of the bubble by diffusion of the nitrogen, but also the compression because of the pressure is much higher. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, like we talked about, CNS oxygen toxicity can result. Um, this is from breathing oxygen at partial pressures greater than 1.6 um, ATA. There are symptoms, the, the way the mnemonic that we use to remember is vented C, so vision, they can have tunnel vision, ringing in their ears, nausea, twitching, irritability. The worst thing is convulsions, is to have somebody in the chamber and all of a sudden they start seizing. That's bad. So um, what do you do to control the seizure? You stop the oxygen, basically, is what you do. And a seizure in water would be worse. So sometimes I get the question, now, what if somebody comes up and you're on a dive boat and they've got the bends, but they've got an oxygen tank? Can you put them in the water and take them back down in depth and you know put them on 100% oxygen? Don't do that. Um, if somebody had a seizure in the water, kind of trying to to do your own hyperbaric, you're probably going to drown. That's bad. Um, I won't go through that as we're running out of time. Um, again, pulmonary oxygen toxicity also results and depending upon how long in the depth either CNS is going to happen first and pulmonary second or vice versa. Usually it's with the kind of um, profiles that you're running to treat people usually you're going to see CNS toxicity long before you'll see pulmonary toxicity unless you take somebody to say 20 feet and you put them on 100% oxygen they're probably not going to have CNS symptoms, but they will develop lung toxicity. Um, again, this was just to remind me to tell you um, the person in the chamber trying to care for that patient is also um, not thinking as clearly. A little bit about exposure, so thermoregulation, so obviously uh, water um, really sucks the heat um, out of the diver. Thermo, so-called thermoneutral water temp is 91, so anything less than that, you risk hypothermia. And the pool that we used to dive in for dive school, I think it was like 85 degrees. Sounds warm, right? 
by the time I mean, we were in there for like five hours, and by the time I was ready to be out, I couldn't stop shivering. Um, so anything colder than 91 for people who might not be working, um, you have to worry about hypothermia with extended exposures. A water temperature of air, I'm sorry, a water temperature of 80 is approximately equivalent to 42 degree air temperature. Some, a lot of people are surprised by that. I'm surprised by that. So again, water is high conductive and high convective heat loss. You can also have respiratory heat loss at depth because you're trying to warm the gas as well. So you have a, a core temperature drop in addition to the, to the constriction that's going on and the shunting. And you also can have uh, bronchorrhea. So what about cold exposure? I think as we all know and we've, we've seen ad nauseum, it's all about prevention, 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 prevention. So be aware and prevent it. Hydration, um, the more dehydrated you are, the more your risk of succumbing to cold. So again, av avoiding diuretics, avoiding alcohol, avoiding caffeine. Um, again, wearing the, the appropriate protective clothing, a wetsuit for 55 to 65 degree water, a dry suit for things colder, maybe even a hot water suit if you have the money and you're going to go dive in an environment like that. So some people say, well, I'm acclimatized because, um, so I don't need to worry as much. Well, that can be bad because you have less shiver response, so less generation of heat less vasoconstriction, so more loss of heat, and you have faster heat loss, shorter time to uh, hypothermia. What about heat exposure? So again, dehydration, you know, people just need to be hydrated, I guess. You can have circulatory compromise and collapse, and again, um, same sort of problem, different problems, um, but things to be aware of. Um, what can you do in heat exposure? You can protect. People can dive with ice vests and monitoring. Again, hydrate. Uh, in the Navy, there are certain things, you know, about fitness to dive, who can dive and who can't. So I oftentimes get asked questions, you know, what if I had somebody with thus and such disease, you know, can they dive? Um, well, if anybody's on INH, they're not supposed to dive. If anybody's ever had middle ear or inner ear surgery, they shouldn't dive. That's different than tubes. Myringotomy tubes, that's okay. But a middle ear surgery, cochlear implant, or some other kind of inner ear surgery, automatically disqualifying. People whose eustachian tubes don't function well, or they have a hard time clearing, probably shouldn't dive. People with severe motion sickness. So you get the question sometimes, we're going to go on vacation. I kind of get seasick, but I really want to do the dive trip. What do you think? Well. If you're really, really sensitive, when you're underwater, there's still a little bit, depending upon the sea state and how deep you are, there's still some current flow and still some rise and fall with the waves. People still get sick underwater. So you can either blow chunks on the boat, you blow chunks in your regulator, and <laughs> kind of take your pick. It's miserable. So people who are really sensitive. What's that? Yeah, it's definitely better to scuba than snorkel. But if you're really sensitive, I, I just wouldn't go. Um, and some skin conditions can be worsened. Um, pulmonary issues, obviously. So people with COPD or asthma maybe should think really hard about diving. 
anybody who's ever had a spontaneous pneumothorax probably shouldn't dive. Probably shouldn't dive. Um, cardiovascular issues, people with history of angina or infarcts probably shouldn't dive. Um, anybody with a seizure history, absolutely. As far as the Navy is concerned, it's disqualifying. Um, anybody who's had a severe closed head injury, I think kind of plus minus depending. Um, so types of diving, we'll go through this real quick. I'm sorry, I'm running long. Um, I want to talk about shallow water blackout. <clears throat> Let's see, do I have the other slide? So there's this slide here. Um, so the drive to breathe is dictated by what? Oxygen or CO2? CO2. CO2. So what happens if somebody hyperventilates? What happens to their oxygen level? Goes up a little bit, but not hugely. What happens to their CO2 level? Goes down. So if you have somebody at the surface who hyperventilates, <laughs> blows off their CO2, slight increase in, in O2, and then let's say they, they go down to say 10 meters. So we talked about, so that's just, that's regular atmospheric pressure in their lungs. So they go down, it's not pressurized gas. So the lungs are going to, they're going to see a lot of pressure. They're going to collapse a little bit. So it's going to force the air to go into solution. What's, what's going to happen with the partial pressure of oxygen? It's going to go up in the bloodstream. It's going to go up in the bloodstream. Your CO2 level stays low. Your drive to breathe is not very high. Your O2 level stays, goes up, so you feel, you feel good, okay? You feel aware. Finally, though, you start feeling that little niggle that maybe I need to, need to breathe. And so you're going to go up. And as you go up, and as the pressure changes, your O2 bottoms out, bottoms out. What maintains consciousness, CO2 or O2? O2. So if your O2 bottoms out, but your CO2 really didn't come up to really make you go to the surface early enough, that's when you get shallow water blackout. So you've hyperventilated, you've submerged, you've artificially increased your partial pressure of oxygen in the bloodstream, and you've set yourself up for passing out because your CO2 hasn't come up quick enough to match the drop in O2. And so in the military, especially in the Navy, we lose probably one or two people a year for doing stuff like this. They have big, tall dive towers, 50-foot towers. And then you practice doing things going up and down in the column in a controlled environment. Inevitably, somebody goes up there alone and is practicing breath hold diving, and we find them you know, later that day when they miss muster or whatever, that they're dead. So it's a, it's a serious problem, and that's kind of a little bit of the physiology behind it. Won't belabor that. SCUBA simply stands for self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. There's a tank and there's a regulator. This regulator functions such that it provides gas at a pressure um, equal to your surrounding pressure. So if you go down to 60 feet, the way that this works is it provides um, the gas at that pressure so that you can inflate your lungs. Because if it, if it provided gas at too high a pressure, you pop your lungs. If it's at too low a pressure, like we talked about, you wouldn't be able to inhale. So it's an ingenious thing. There's a graphic on the web, but unfortunately it doesn't download very easily to kind of show how that does, but it, it's a two-stage two step down.
we talked about that. Surface supply diving simply refers to uh, when you see people underwater walking on the sea and they've got a helmet on and they've got a, a line to the top where air is pumped down to them and they also have uh, communications. So the original uh, kind of surface supply diving was uh, the Mark V helmet. So these divers, uh, which is basically how diving started in the military, at least for salvage purposes, um, this suit fills with air. So the, the air hose came in through the top, the whole suit filled with air. So they had to wear 280 pounds to be negatively buoyant to stay on the seafloor and walk around. 280 pounds, huge amount. This is um, a picture of some, some of my classmates um, when we were out in Panama City, Florida, doing our qualifying dive um, out in the open water. This is the new helmet, it's Mark 21 Superlight. Very nice, very comfortable. Um, they reduced the dead space. Compared to here, there was nothing around the diver's mouth, so you can imagine all of this here. Depending upon uh, how hard they were working, sometimes you could have increased CO2 levels, and so it wasn't uncommon for them to get headaches and things. But here, it's all delivered in a, a face mask right here, so you have good transfer of gas. Um, you don't have those problems. Divers going over the side. This is what a lot of um, commercial companies use today as well um, for their diving. Um, this graph, just to demonstrate, or not graph, but figure, table, to show potential problems associated with the phase um, of diving. Um, I'm not going to belabor that as we're short on time. Um, there are what are also called closed circuit rigs. Um, there's what's called the LAR-5 Drager, um, which it has an oxygen cylinder and um, soda lime a canister within it so that you have a mouthpiece with an inhale hose and an exhale hose. And basically, you're breathing 100% oxygen and it scrubs out the CO2. So there's no bubbles, so you can be stealthy. Yeah, so yeah, the soda lime's on the, on the anesthesia carts. That little white stuff, you see it go from white to purple. You don't want to get water in that and try and breathe that. That's bad. Yeah. Um, there's also, for um, the explosive ordnance disposal guys, there's what's called a low mu rig. So these, these rigs don't have a magnetic signature. A lot of mines and things are triggered to go off by a magnetic signature. Ships go by, they're, they're made of metal, so they have a, a huge magnetic signature. So it'd be bad to try and disarm a bomb and it goes off because your, your rig is... Your, your diving rig is magnetized. And again, both of them use the sodium bicarbonate, and then there's also the hard suit. This is my dive class. This is the LAR-5 Drager. So without getting into two specifics, your CO2 scrubber and your oxygen canister are kind of in the front. They wear it in the front when they dive. And you can see there's a, let's see if there's a good example. There's a hose here and a hose here. One of them's inhalation, one of them's exhalation. And this is um, an, an example of the uh, explosive ordnance disposal team. So you can see that theirs is worn on the back, slightly different, it's larger. Um, again, hoses, and you notice there's no bubbles. Um, again, there's no magnetic signature on this. And they have the capability to dive both oxygen only or nitrogen-oxygen, um, and they can control the, the mixture with the little, little dial on their side, depending upon how deep they go.
This is the new newt suit or hard suit. This is a, actually a one atmosphere suit. So when this person goes down, they, uh, they don't see any increased pressure. They see one atmosphere. So you don't have to worry about the same things. You don't have to worry about nitrogen narcosis. You don't have to worry about getting the bends unless the suit fails. But it's a, it's a one atmosphere suit. Two slides on the submarine rescue chamber. Um, first use of the submarine rescue chamber was on the Squalus. was invented by Charles Momsen. You've seen some of those accidents that have been um, in the news recently. Um, we have our own deep submergence rescue vehicle out of um, Point Loma in San Diego. Uh, unclassified, it can go down to 2,000 feet of seawater. So it's probably a good guess that it could go deeper, um, but I can't tell you how deep that is. I don't, even, I don't think I even know. And they can take 24 survivors per trip. Uh, the unfortunate thing is, is you see the, a lot of political things kind of come out. So for instance, when the Russian sub went down not too long ago, and, and we were all set to go help, and well, you know, maybe we don't want American help. We'll try and do it ourselves. And so that's always kind of unfortunate. And I think the Swedes or the, or the Norwegian Navy also has one of these as well. And this is a picture from some time that I spent on the USS Kamehameha. This is off the coast of Kauai um, when they let me disembark before they were going to go do some other things. But um, on the back is a, what's called a dry deck shelter where they have little, little submarines for seals to drive. They can stuff them. They stuff these guys in there. I don't know if you ever got to see one, but they have a yeah. So they have a they have a driver, and they have a navigator, and then they have this little hatch in the back, and they can stuff like you know four or five other guys in there. You know, they stuff them in there, and then they go off and do their thing, and then come back. Any questions? There was one question on the subject of free diving and the physiology that's involved in that. Yeah. Yeah. So they ride us. Yeah, they ride a weighted sled, so they have this big line. These guys, their physiology is a little bit different because they've been doing it so long. So their their propensity for shallow water blackouts different than say well, mine. But somebody did, yeah, yeah attempting, the attempting the record. So right, and she blacked she's out to break like, her husband's like not that far from yeah. the surface. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So that's so that's all they're doing. So they're training. They do all these breath hold exercises for years and years and years, and so. Their FRC and their physiology and all that is, is much different than ours. But all, that, all that's doing is, in my opinion, it doesn't, doesn't test heart. It doesn't test anything. All it does is it's that race between do I get to the surface before I black out or do I black out first? Like, that's it. It's, it's a simple just kind of physiologic experiment. Like, I'm against the sport, but... Nobody cares what my opinion is on that. <laughs>